I think this is all solved, but I'm a boring value investor by buying based on valuation. I just do because then you buy near the bottom and not near the top, and then you ride the wave up. <laughs> You're, you fell asleep over there. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doodles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. You know who I was thinking of this week? Klondike bars? That's not even a who. Chuck E. Cheese Pizza in Tuscaloosa, Alabama? Closer. Closer. Okay. Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> thinking about Jiminy Cricket. Another one of these diggles. Like no, that's really that that's that's all. It's just a lot of for some reason Jiminy just kept coming into my brain this week. Isn't In Jiminy multiple, like a, a like really I funny it, name? I, I almost like use it as an expletive at some point. It's like Jiminy Cricket. Like it just kept like I don't know why. Anyway. Hey, come on, our podcast is for the kids. Like don't that's use true. those curse words on here. That's true. That's true. It is a it is a pretty good expletive. It's yeah, it's like it just works. Some things just work. So this time we're going to we're going to start as we have gotten better at starting saying, please go rate, review the podcast helps people to find us. But then specifically also want to call out a couple other things. One is if you go to skippydoogles.supercast.com, you can become a premium subscriber. Appreciate all the folks that have done that. You can either do that in a way that is simply I call it supportive, a low fee monthly basis helps us to keep this ad free. And then also we have a higher end subscription where you get special drops, special podcast drops, where we, uh, we go into, I'd say, a little bit more depth of, uh, of investing a few times a year. So if you're up for it, please do it. Yeah, that's good stuff. We appreciate the support. You know, I was listening to one of, one of our good friends now has a podcast, William Green, who will be back on the show soon. Awesome podcast. Highly recommend it. But Dougal's. To get through one of some of these other podcasts, some of these other investing podcasts, you might listen to like 10 ads and the NPR model over here that we're rocking, I think is a much better solution. That's right. That's right. So please support. And also skippydoogles.substack.com. Uh, that's every Monday we drop a lot of the article links uh, that we might mention throughout the podcast. Uh, and then also you might get some other drops. Uh, about portfolios, just thoughts on investing and whatnot. So skippydoogles.substack.com. Please hit that up. Appreciate it. We're going to continue the listener mail trend this week. It was your recommendation and it worked out well. Listener mail at the end of the episode. Uh, thank you, Greg, who sent in listener mail asking about the debt cycle. We're going to hit that at the end of the episode. So uh, excited to talk about that. Let's jump into the fishbowl. This time in the fishbowl, I've got a, a Doogles special this week where I started playing around with graphs. You know, sometimes I play around with, with data. I just go in, start looking at stuff, get ideas, get insights. Bear market rallies is what uh, was influencing me this week. What you know about bear market rallies? I'm just curious if you ran this analysis by the intern to make sure everything checks out. Oh, you mean Dougal Jr.? <laughs> um, I know bear market rallies are some of the juiciest rallies at times there's some goodness trapped in there and this is the time where everybody's freaking out and then 
uh, they allow their freak out to actually have them miss some of the like real juicy mater- uh, returns. At least that's what I think. Tell me if I'm right. No, yeah, that that's exactly what happens. It's when we hit a few times up on this podcast, we discuss how staying invested is important. Make sure that you are in the market for the long term, especially. And one of the reasons is because if you freak out, pull your cash out, you could hit a rally, right? And then you put it back in. It's hard. To, you can't really time this thing. So you put it back in. It could drop, right? Pull it back out, rally. Right? And during yeah. these bear markets, you you talk, you talk starburst, bro. I'm going to call them starburst rallies. You know why? Something about the rainbow. Wait, that's Skittles. Because the juice no is loose. Because <laughs> the juice is loose sometimes. And we, so this past week, what was it? NASDAQ was up like 7% or so. Is that what you were saying earlier? Yeah. Right. Seven and a half, maybe. Yeah. Seven yeah. percent last week. So, so what I did was I went back uh, about twenty years to the bear market of bear markets for tech, at least, and this is the two thousand to two thousand two slash two thousand three bear market for Nasdaq. And I was looking at Nasdaq, and you're always hitting with the the hot stat, right, of how far Nasdaq dropped overall from peak to trough that time period, yep. which was eighty two percent. Eighty two percent. As, as my good friends across the Atlantic would say, sacre bleu, right? When you hear things like this. And I'm telling you right now, so you had an 82% drop overall. But I was looking at what some of the rallies were in there, right? So you had multiple 20% plus rallies. Yeah. So if you just think about, you think about sitting on your, on your portfolio and being like, ah, right? Every day you feel like you're getting hit. Then you see this 20% rally. It feels glorious. But the reason they call them bear market rallies is because it doesn't lead to the next bull. It's just like a, it's a flash in the pan. It happens and then it continues to drop. So you see multiple 20%. But here's the quiz for you here. What was the largest rally of the NASDAQ composite index between 2000 and 2003? You're talking trough to peak? Trough to next peak. Yeah, because you have a downward trend that in mm-hmm. total goes... 82% down, uh, but you have some craziness in between. I'm going to go like 30-ish percent. Yeah, if you extend that ish by another 10%, you're absolutely right. The largest was 45%. Wow. Yeah, so it's, at some point during that 2000 to 2003, where you had an 82% aggregate peak to trough drop, you had a 45% rally. Here's my question for you. So. It, I can imagine someone saying, why do I care? It's it's great if it goes up a little, but if over the course of two to three years, it goes down 82%, I still don't want to ride that wave. Well, I think, the, why, why don't you care? Or why should you care is because what we talked about around timing. Well, and so that's what I'd say, but I, I was trying to throw you a softball there. So that assumes that you can figure out the actual real trough and jump in there perfectly, which is impossible to do. Right. So at some point, you kind of have to say, I'm in this for the long haul. I know my time horizon and my investment strategy makes sense or I'm not. Um, But the jumping in and out is a pointless losing game. And going back to what we were saying before on on that same point is you throw your money back in at the top of that 45 percent rally because who because you can't time it. And then, boom, drop again, which is probably what's more likely to happen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so that's, that's that. Then just for funsies. So that's an NASDAQ. I was like, let me look at an index for funsies. I went, let's pick one of our 
our top star of the overall market stocks, individual stocks, and look at what happened to it then. And this is Amazon, right? So amazon.com, you know, I, I don't actually know what it's up fully right now, but it's like hundreds of thousands of percent or something. Like it's, it's, a, it's very, very great performance. Don't, don't quote me on that, but do, because I just quoted myself. But anyway, so Amazon, if you look Amazon top to bottom, right during that period, so full peak to trough, was down about 92%. Yep. So nearly all of Amazon got wiped out during this period. Amazon had multiple 40% plus rallies. So what the NASDAQ did, Amazon did several times throughout this period. What was Amazon's top rally? So from one of its troughs to the next peak. Probably like 70. Extend it. Extend it a little bit more. 120. A little bit lower than that, but that's close. Yeah. So it more than doubled. It was around 105% was it's like trough to next peak. That is enormous. Like you get a, you have this nearly full wipeout, right? Of Amazon stock. And in between there, you have multiple 40% plus rallies. Plus it doubled more than doubled <laughs> one time. This market, this is this, I mean, the whole thing you were talking about around timing, like this market is just not this. I don't mean the market we're in right now, but the market, like overall, yeah. you just, you never know what an uh, investor's emotions are going to cause them to do or their computer algorithms are going to cause them to do like day in, day out when things can just like pop, drop, pop and lock. So I mean, you're giving your examples there with NASDAQ and Amazon. This is not a criticism, but I just I just think this is worth diving into are both like NASDAQ is as turbulent and volatile as you're going to get in the equity space for an index pretty much because it's heavy growth and tech, right? And then Amazon is an extreme example of that. So when you talk about these downfalls and the, the potential rebounds, they are on the extreme side of, they're more extreme than the S&P would be or the Dow would be or a big conglomerate and well-established uh, firm on solid financial footing like a Walmart, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just the reason I point that out is this goes to something I was talking a while back. When I see a portfolio returns that's up 100% a year, I go, you know what? They're betting on the gambling speculative type stuff. And that means that very likely in the near future, they're going to have a drawdown of 50 to 70%. So I, that's kind of what I... I'm thinking about when you talk about these big downswings and these big upswings, it's just, you're in a speculative space. Yeah. I, I think that that is perfectly fair. And one of the reasons, there are a couple of reasons why I use those examples. One of the reasons is because like they are more volatile. It's more fun to talk about the numbers. That's one. Yeah. The second reason is because when people are talking about getting um, clobbered in the market right now, most of it is not because of the S and P 500. I mean, yes, the S and P 500, was, sure. I don't know what it ended up down at the end of this week, but it was down like 23%, right? Or something like that at some point. But if it was just 23%, for the most part, people wouldn't be fully screaming from the hills. It's the fact that they were in the, the big ticket, like the Pelotons, right? At the, at the peak, or they were an arc, right? And getting clobbered. Yep. That's like, yep. We're talking about the 70%, 80% drops is what folks are talking about right now. So the reason I bring it up um, outside of the numbers being fun is because in some of these stocks, you could end up getting a 40% pop, right? And that 
I'm not going to say that that is or is not a sign that there's a turnaround. It could be either way. What I'm yeah. saying is that it's not definitively a sign of any sort of a, a turnaround. You can have these pops that then drop. That, that, that's, that's, all, that's what I'm saying. Because people be watching those. People be watching those. We, we finally got some rhyming, which means the show has <laughs> truly started. <laughs> yes. Don't let the pops drop. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is all solved, but I'm a boring value investor by buying based on valuation. I just do. Because then you buy near the bottom and not near the top, and then you ride the wave up. <laughs> You're, you fell asleep over there. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, I, no, I hear you. I, I, you know, I greatly respect your, uh, your investing prowess over there. We just got different philosophies, but one to drop that. Cause I know people are watching it. It's good just to be educated. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything one way or another, but, uh, I do believe that looking at past data and understanding what the market is capable of, uh, and knowing that there could be false signs. It's just important to know. That's it. I like it. Appreciate the uh, analysis for sure. I want to switch gears. But it's similar, actually, and and give uh, Jack Rains on YoungMoney.co a shout out. He's made the the show multiple times in the past couple of months, um, doing really good work over there. We'll put this out on the Twitter. He had a piece called "Not Financial Advice" that was really good, and talks about the perils of telling people what they should invest in, as well as listening to what others are investing in. And there's so many layers to this onion. But first things first, I think. His main point here is that a lot of times people peddling financial advice are peddling it for personal gain. And if you're not aware of that, you should be because it's a super slippery slope and we do our best. I I bet we could do even better, but we always try and talk when we talk financial topics on the show, we we try and go out of our way to to say research recommendations. I mean, nothing you're going to hear is financial advice. The reason for that is when Douglas and I talk about things, even if we have money behind them, we have our personal time horizon, our personal risk tolerance, our personal financial situation, all these things. To give a real life example of that, that ties to the article, like when I talk about Kohl's and the acquisition stuff going on, I know that if that doesn't go through, I'm still happy holding Kohl's for two years because I think it's a, a very cheap stock that has a lot of cash. That's not going to be the case for someone else that hears me talk about Kohl's is potentially intrigued. If the acquisition falls through, they're just going to be pissed off and mad because they're going into that exact same purchase potentially in this hypothetical situation with an entirely different set, an entirely different checklist of what would satisfy them. And that's the case 99% of the time, if not 100% of the time with Everyone doing financial things. We all have different financial situations, different risk tolerances, different time horizons. So that's the main takeaway from the piece. The piece gives some really specific examples of where he has personally been burned and other people have been burned on both sides of this equation. Um, But I think it's a really good read. Fully agreed. And I will double down on your point around the stuff that we talk about and the stuff others talk about, you should interpret as something that they likely believe will occur or recommend to themselves because of everything you mentioned, risk, time horizon, et cetera. Right. On um, the, the last time that I put out my portfolio update, yeah. uh, there was a section 
where I, I, I dropped in uh, the volatility, right, of my portfolio over the last couple of years. And one of the reasons I put that in there is reflective of that. Like, I know that personally, because of my long time horizon, and just like the way that my physiology and like psychology works, I can handle that, right? Yep. I know that most people can't. I know most people like wouldn't be able to, to handle that and actually just hold on, right? You look at what, uh, I don't know what goes into this, but th- I'll just bring up Kathy Wood for a second, not as a criticism, but just like as a human, right? When she, we, we talk about how she's like selling Tesla, buying Tesla, right? Selling Tesla, like that kind of stuff is like, that's, that's what naturally happens with human beings because it's really hard. Um, again, I don't know specifically for her why, but I could see a reason being that's like really hard to hold on to this stuff when it's dropping there, especially with the kind of public pressure she's under. So anyway, double down on that. Well, I mean, there's three layers to this, really. If you hear someone giving so-called financial advice or stock picks, it, it probably falls into one of three categories. And two of the three are really bad. One is they have a personal interest. There's personal gain to them pitching other people to buy it. So they go on CNN because they have a holding and they want other people to buy it so they could get out or they could run up the price. Two is they just have ideas and they don't actually have money on the line at all, which is more than half of mutual fund managers manage their fund and don't have any money in the fund. I mean, what does that tell you about their personal prospects? Three is hopefully a bucket we fall into where we at least have true beliefs and we put real money on the line. That is our money and a significant part of our wealth. That's the best situation, but that's still not a good reason to take financial advice from someone else. (laughs) You should take financial advice from a financial professor that fully knows all the aspects of your risk tolerance, your personality, your financial situation. That's the only time. And and one of the reasons uh, I, I not only enjoy, but like I'm cool right? With the podcast that we have here is on the enjoyment front. I love talking to you. It's fun, right? And enjoy all these topics on the like reason I'm cool with it is we've been having these conversations for at different levels of frequency for like 20 years, right? Yeah. Give or take. And so this was, this was a circumstance we went, we're taking conversations that we have not, not on a weekly frequency necessarily historically. And like, it's just our combos. We're putting them on the line, you know? Um, and so it's legit combos. We enjoy this in it's legit combo because we, we are investors, right? We have our, our money in these individual yep. stocks, but always research advice. Can I drop some, uh, some things I think are just interesting about Jack's background here? Cause I, I wasn't sure who he was. I was like, this is a good writer. Like what I know is good writer, right. And drops some yeah. knowledge on the blog. I went and listened to a podcast interview um, with Jack. And he also mentioned some information about his past here. Jack graduated from college in 2019. So that, that I didn't expect that originally. Graduated from college in 2019, got a job as a, um, at a finance company and decided to start investing, right? And so this would have been in 20, 2020, started investing, took, put $6,000 into a Roth IRA, day traded on SPACs, WAX and stacks, and turned that $6,000 into like 400k mm-hmm. right and said said to himself <laughs> i'm a stark market genius and i need to tell other people about my genius and so jack started writing right and said if if i'm this good at this like people need to know about this and i can make money doing this so looked for ways to to write about uh, write and make money off of off of the, what he's learning in the stock market 
And so wrote some posts, started making some money on this one, what he brought up and you touched on this at a high level was the seeking alpha post, one seeking alpha post that he wrote. I think he did a few of them, but one that he wrote took off like wildfire and was about this stock called catapult, which was a buy now pay later stock. And he said, this is a, like a home run obvious. There's no way it goes down. And on this stock lost 150,000 of that $400,000 in a day. I think it was actually an hour. <laughs> um, like yeah, lost it was it. an hour. Because they effectively lied about their financial situation, if I remember yeah. correctly. And, and so lost that amount of money. And what I, what I love is, one, um, his willingness to tell this story. And two, the, him losing money and thinking about the fact that he went out there and was legit promoting the stock meant that there are probably other people out there that he caused to lose money. This is in his, like his yeah. own psychology. No, there definitely and, is. It yeah. sucks, but yeah. that's true. And and he just felt bad about that, right? And and that was in as from what he's writing, that's one of the reasons why he's like, okay, like being prom being promotional about your investing is not okay. Uh, and a couple of quotes from this that I really liked. He said two realizations he had. One, I'm not a market genius. I'm just a guy who played a hot trend well for a while. Two, I am a convincing writer who can explain my arguments well. And it was the combination of those two things that he was saying could either be a weapon, right? If, if you use that in the wrong way, it doesn't work out well. But knowing that you're a convincing writer, like, and he still likes the financial markets, then you can use your convincing arguments in a different way that is not promotional, but just talks about the market, right? And I, yep. I think that that's a, it's like a really good story and, and turnaround and realization. Yeah, completely agree. Nice work, Jack. Shout out. And uh, oh, one other thing I love. So he uh, he dropped a few examples, as you mentioned on here. <laughs> the one that stood out to me was Pomp. Yes. Uh, Anthony Pompliano talking about Bitcoin. And specifically, there's a tweet that he mentioned in this this post. This is I, maybe not even the epitome because people have probably done worse than this, too. But I looked at this tweet. And I was just like, oh, okay. Anyway, let me just, I'll read it to you. So this is back in November of last year. Bitcoin's at like 60,000. Here's a tweet. If you're a shareholder in a publicly traded business and they don't have Bitcoin on their balance sheet, it is time to start demanding it. They are complicit in the destruction of shareholder value as long as we have persistently high inflation. I mean, <laughs> Bitcoin's the world's best inflation <laughs> hedge, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never really thought of a hedge as something that that uh, underperforms <laughs> when, when when inflation is high. Like an inflation so, hedge should <laughs> underperform when inflation is high. If inflation erodes like, you know, 9% of your wealth this uh with 9% of your cash this year and Bitcoin goes down what 60-70%. That seems I don't I'm not very good at math. That seems right to me. That seems good. You know, to be fair, I, I guess it's probably my lack of understanding about what a hedge is because to a hedge should move in the opposite direction, of, right, in order to hedge. Like that, that is what a hedge, it moves in the opposite direction. So if inflation goes higher, Bitcoin goes lower, that's moving in the opposite direction. That's a hedge. You're killing me. Right. So problem solved. I mean, there's also a sailor that we're too hard on these guys. I'm sure they're nice guys. And hey. Bitcoin still might go to a million bucks coin at some point, but when you, if you wanted it on the balance sheet of your company for strategic purposes in the year 2020, it probably didn't work out so well for you. <laughs> probably not. Probably not.
random All guess right. on that one. All right, I'm going to dip into the fishbowl one more time. I'm uh, going to mention debt a little bit here, but really going to talk about uh, making big bets and speculative investments. Well, maybe not speculative, but risky. I'll call it investments as well. I thought this was a really interesting article here in Bloomberg. And this article was about uh, specifically D1 Capital. It talked about uh, the most, and that's a, a venture capital firm as well as a hedge fund. It also mentioned Tiger and some of the other uh, hedge funds too. And what it's talking about here is this, I'll call it the conflation of assets that's happened more recently um, between private market investments and public market investments. And so typically you have companies like venture capital firms, which we've mentioned, which will invest in privately held companies. So companies that are not listed on the stock market, right? And they put their investments there. And what what happens there, and actually uh, when Adam Burroughs came on the podcast about a year ago, he's a venture capitalist and he was talking about his own psychology. And one of the reasons that venture capital works well for him is the illiquidity. And yeah. so when you, as a, if, if you or I decided to invest in a venture capital firm, we'd be known as an LP, right? We put our money in the firm and the venture capital firm says, you're not seeing this money for like three to seven years minimum, right? And maybe a little bit longer. And you just know that, like you can't pull out your money, right? That's just the way it works. When you put your money into a hedge fund, you typically are able to pull your money out on like a monthly basis, a quarterly basis, or something that's more frequent, right? They're, they're built to be liquid. So to yeah. speak, so I mean, sometimes it's yearly, but yeah, it's yeah. fair. It's more liquid than being an LP in a VC firm, I'd say. Exactly. So all that's context to say in this Bloomberg article, what it's saying is you've got these companies now that are like part hedge fund, part, um, part venture capital fund. And D1 specifically was allowing folks to invest up to 99% of what they were putting into the, the fund in private assets on that venture capital side. And because of the structure there, right? You can you have folks that from a hedge fund perspective technically can pull their money out on a monthly, quarterly, whatever annual basis yeah. as you're mentioning with assets that aren't meant to be played with that often. And with all of the, the private market, I'm not going to say collapse, that's too strong, but like crash, right? Like the, the decrease in valuation of a lot of private market funds has outpaced even the public market. There's this cool graph in there that was showing, I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently there's a refinitive VC index that yeah. like marks to market um, private investments. And it has dropped like 44, 47% um, this year, which at the time the NASDAQ was about 22%. It's further down now, but it was about 22%. And so it's more than double what the NASDAQ had dropped. And so you, you have these firms that are now sitting in places where in D1's circumstance has borrowed, they borrowed a couple billion dollars, right? Um, using the collateral from their private market investments, they borrowed to then invest in these companies. And technically people should be able to pull their money out, but they've got assets that are like not meant to have their money pulled out. And so the circumstance that at least according to this Bloomberg piece, I don't know how, like what the, what the actual ties, right, for their assets are, but according to the Bloomberg piece, they could be sitting in places where they go, do we take out additional money, right, to, to pay investors? Do we have to sell? some of the assets that we're not really supposed to be selling at this point or other, right? And it creates this really interesting dynamic. But the problem typically comes when debt is involved. 
I mean, there's other logistical challenges here, uh, as you did a great job articulating. But I think if they didn't have debt, this would be a simpler one. What's interesting that relates to what you're talking about, and tell me if your memory is better than mine here, is um, at some point in the last 18 months, there was a disconnect in valuations between uh, private companies and public companies. And so you'd have like a private competitor in the e-commerce space that might be very similar to like a Shopify or something. And I remember hearing stories from the Valley of people not really wanting to go public because it would actually uh, decrease the value of their company. I think those multiples have now fully corrected. And that's why the chart you're showing here with the mark to market of the private companies has pulled back more than like the NASDAQ because those valuations kind of now line up. This was at least a few months ago, I think. You were talking about how Scott McNeely, the um, right. former CEO of Sun, was discussing how a 10x sales to price ratio, meaning if you if your business has sales of a million dollars, but the market is valuing at $10 million, it's like that's nearly impossible to ever achieve, basically, if you look yeah. at growth. And so we've had many public market companies as of late that were between that 10 to 20 or even more, but you know, between that 10 mm -hmm. to 10 to 20 X, right. Which Scott McNeely is saying is outrageous, but in the private markets, you're looking at companies that are 20, 25, 30, 35 times, right. Their, their sales um, with no sign of to profitability in many cases, because they weren't, they weren't meant to, to be that yet. And so you're, you're right that there's like, there's a multiple uh, discrepancy there. People are just, it's just like when you get, you get hungry, right? During these hot waves and it seems like nothing is going to drop. You just start to get buck wild, right? Valuations I mean, don't matter to anyone except Skippy. By, by hungry, you mean greedy, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to say here. money hungry and just decided to say hungry. <laughs> but yeah, you, you get greedy, right? You get greedy. And in many cases, it's like risk-free greed. So from, from the, when I say that, risk-free to the person that's being greedy, Meaning like you could, if your fund goes to zero, you still, you get paid on the amount, at least today, you get paid on the amount of assets, right? That you might be managing, or you might even take money off the top at the beginning. And so if everything goes to zero, it's like risk-free might be too much. Risk-free might be too strong, but no, that that's where I get fired up about the whole SPAC nonsense. Sorry, this is off the cuff. So these numbers won't be perfect. He, he started the SPAC, got paid $250 million, put in total capital of $250,000 of his own money, if I remember correctly, and is now down whatever, more than 50%. Like, that's a scam. There's a lot of people that did that in 2020. And very few of those have had solid performance. And that is just... It's just a scam. It's worse than what we talked about earlier of taking poor financial advice from someone who has something to gain from it. It's like someone literally ripping you off effectively, selling you a bill of goods, and they make out just fine. And and you could the use of the word scam is aggressive. I know why you I I understand it yeah. though. I think the the argument could be that you don't know that it's not going to work out. Like you also believe that it could work out. And so then everyone would be happy. Some of these are so obvious <laughs> that like it, it wouldn't work out that it's kind of like, a, what was it? Uh, Nicola? What, what's, what's the, yeah. uh, the yeah. truck company? Yep. 
it's like some of them are just so obvious that there there's there's nothing to see here i remember um and i haven't looked at this company in a while so i'm just i'm picking on a company at a particular point in time right um this was groupon when groupon first went public so they released their s1 which is a document that companies looking to go public have to release that gives their historical financials over the last few years and their risks and everything i remember because groupon was the hotness right yeah it was a like, huge deal yeah groupon was so big growing so massively and was like the talk of the town so groupon's s1 came out and i was like i'm gonna sit down and read this i read the s1 and <laughs> as like every page i was turning my eyes got bigger and bigger i was like this is a this is the most obvious house of cards of all time right like at it's, least in, in, in my time it, um, how, someone i mean not not me someone might say it's a scam yeah. it was like they it, I didn't read their S1, but effectively they were just like giving away their product and service, hiring like crazy and having no funds flow back in the door. But it was everywhere, like the marketing story around it and the household recognition of the name was huge. People thought it was a whole new thing, but it it almost goes to your quote from last week, like. Well, no, not even. I was going to say you can be profitable and bankrupt, but no, they were never even profitable. Like you could just be, you could be not profitable and bankrupt, <laughs> but have a marketing story. I don't even know. It's, yeah, it was outrageous. So they're S one, and I don't remember if this. I'm going to get the numbers wrong too because this was a while ago. But directionally, what I'm about to say is right, and I can't remember if I'd like read part of this in the S one or if I read it somewhere else. But when I was researching Groupon at the time something like six months prior to the the release of the s1 groupon had raised i'm gonna call it a billion dollars it was it was a large amount of money right yeah. let's just call it a billion dollars for the sake of the podcast there is like a billion dollars and the like top shareholders took like 900 million of it it was something along those lines and so i'm reading this thing there's an obvious house of cards and also seeing that the people who have the most inside information about the company, knowing that they're going public in the next six months, which is when there's liquidity, don't want to see their money still in the stock yeah. at that point in time. It's like, this is outrageous. So, uh, an aside, but uh, that was just one example that just popped in my mind. So, cool. I thought this was an interesting piece. Uh, you'll see it on the Substack on Monday. We can also throw it on Twitter. Listener mail time? Or you got something else? Listener mail time. All right. Hit that jingle. They fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. Fight, 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 fight. The Skippy and Dugo Show. Now let's get into it. So thank you, Greg, for sending this in. We, we've mentioned, or I guess probably I've mentioned, um, the debt cycle on the pod before. And I don't remember the exact context of when we last mentioned it, but Greg wrote in and said, what is the debt cycle? Like, can you explain what the, what the debt cycle is? Happy to. This is one of those questions I see this and I go, oh, you want me to be a nerd? Okay. Okay. <laughs> don't got to ask me twice. You know what I mean? So um, I'm going to give the, the high level of what a debt cycle is, and then we can get a little bombastic with it if, if we want to. Yeah. So high level the debt cycle is you have a period where capital becomes cheaper um, and this capital specifically can be debt so let's say interest rates go down 
interest rates get, a, get to a point where people, capital so cheap, people start grabbing up all the capital. So that is increased borrowing. So people mm -hmm. take out more and more and more debt. So that's the early part of the debt cycle. The middle part is when they take out so much debt that they are overextended, right? Mm -hmm. Such that if the cost of capital starts to go up, that they won't be able to afford their borrowing costs. And then guess what happens? The cost of capital <laughs> ends up going up. And so interest rates in this case end up going up. So then capital costs, the cost of borrowing ends up going up and then there's default. So that is, yep. that is the, the debt cycle is low cost of borrowing, borrowing, excessive borrowing, capital costs go up and then default. That's like, that is the cycle itself at a high level. You're explaining me in reversion to me, Douglas. <laughs> the, oh, I the like centerpiece it. of everything. Jokes aside, that's an important, it's important to understand. But part of this, from my perspective, and sorry to jump in, is just kind of like, yeah, this is what happens. This is what happens with like, you put out too many, an unlimited amount of candy at the kid's birthday party. Like they eat too much. One of them vomits. And then they all turn into crazed little children. And then everyone goes home because the party's no fun anymore because they ate too much Sour Patch Kids. Is it? Is this just <laughs> what happens in life? <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so that's the debt cycle. And I think the, um, the question that can naturally come out of that explanation is, so like, why do we care? Why does the debt cycle, cycle like matter? What's the point? Uh, and this is really where it can get like incredibly nerdy. I'm going to try and keep it not too nerdy, but just the right amount to tickle my fancy. There are, there are multiple reasons actually why you should care. And it depends on the time horizon you're looking at. So in a short time horizon, and I'll, I'll say short time horizons, like a decade or so or so in a short time horizon, it can be a macro factor, like a high level factor to look at where, if we're talking about the markets, like where the markets are sitting right now and chance of insolvency and default and bankruptcy, right, for companies. So if you're watching that, and if you look over the last, it's probably more like 15 years in the US, you had the whole financial crisis that occurred in like the 2007-ish period, interest rates came down near to zero. You had about a decade of people over borrowing. We've talked a lot about debt here and how the government, individuals, companies, et cetera, or like overextended to different levels, but are vastly overextended. And now you say, okay, now what happens when interest rates start to go up, right? And that's, so now we're potentially on that, that last part of the cycle. So that's one reason looking at that short, I'll call that a short-term time horizon. Another is looking at a long time horizon. You can look at it from like a, the nation state perspective of like, where is the US right now in its own broader debt cycle? And that's when I, like that gets much more nerdy, but it, like I am, I get to be pretty interested in that. And one factor to look at there is you look at a uh, debt to GDP is often a um, something that's, that's raised. And like the U S historically has never been close to where we are from a debt to GDP perspective and debt to GDP may not necessarily matter as much when I think you, you said this, uh, it was great. I hate giving you credit for things, but you said something uh, fantastic like a year-ish ago when you talked about like that doesn't matter until things go down yeah and it's similar here that the u.s can because we are the reserve currency of the world which means that we are the currency that all nations will buy and hold because it was like all the ultimate faith right it'll always be paid back so long as we're reserve currency 
that doesn't necessarily matter. But then the moment that we're, if, if there is a moment when we are no longer the reserve currency and it becomes the renminbi or there's like, isn't one for some period of time, then debt matters a heck of a lot, right? And so you look at the, the nation state uh, debt cycle. That's the second reason I'll mention. The third gets to the inequality piece that we've talked about a lot. That oftentimes what happens in the debt cycle is when debt becomes in the, the period of the debt cycle and debt becomes incredibly cheap, it's not really universal um, who ends up grabbing a lot of the capital. Um, it actually increases inequality during that times typically because it's the, the people with more wealth generally have more access to funds and they're the ones that borrow the most and then end up in those situations that we talked about before where they are the ones that can then orchestrate these financial situations where they can use the debt to make a whole lot of money that is more risk-free. And so you end up in a case where the, the people that have a lot end up getting a lot more and the people that had a little end up getting more debt, but, but don't necessarily get more um, uh, financial assets, right? Yeah. And so, that, so that, those, are, those are like the three things that come to mind here. There's a short time horizon thing, a long time horizon thing, and then inequality are like three reasons why I personally care. Was that nerdy enough? It's pretty nerdy. Um, gosh, the nation state one is so interesting. Because you're right, it's, I, I want to say debt doesn't matter uh, for the US, I'd say uh, it's more fungible and forgivable in a reserve currency space than it, drastically so, than it would be otherwise, uh, because it's ultimately a supply and demand equation, and there's just significantly more demand when the world does business, most of the world, not all the world, does business in your currency. The inequality piece is a good point. I'm trying to think if I have anything to add or like if I could articulate. I mean, the way I'm thinking about that, let me just bounce some ideas off of you. The simplest example that comes to mind is um, is borrowing to purchase a home, right? And if you're on solid, more solid financial footing, then you're going to be able to borrow more. And then when home prices double in the next 10 years, you because of your operating leverage with the debt that you use to purchase the more expensive home in the first place, you end up in a much better situation. So you leverage that debt in a way that's massively beneficial to you. Is that a good, I mean, help me think about other examples of that. Like I was trying to relate it back to credit cards and stuff too, but I think that's a different trap. That's more of a trap than a way to smartly leverage debt. And I know I'm on the personal consumer space, not necessarily in the corporate world. Yeah, but but you're still right, even with credit cards. I mean, it it it's not a trap until it is, is, is like the problem with it, right? But if, if you think about, um, I'm not, and what I'm about to say, I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just like giving an example, right? Let's go back like a decade. And I'm going back a decade because now things are getting hit real hard. But you wouldn't have known this a decade ago, but a decade ago, you had 11 years to run yeah. in the stock market, right? If you're someone that has high access to capital, even if that capital's debt, and you're able to take out debt, whether that's a line of credit you know, against your house or Robinhood's giving you money or whomever, if you are able to take out debt and you throw that into the market, you are in a, like a massive 
bull market run. Now, if you keep doubling down on your debt, you can do that in a, you, that's probably a bad idea anyway, right? But you can also do it in a way that's even dumber by continuing definitely. to take out more it's, debt. It's definitely right? a bad idea. It's definitely idea. dumb. Just, but yeah. I'm just giving an example of like that. That's, that's like an example where others might not have access to that capital to like double down on their bet, right? And to leverage. <laughs> so I'm not saying it's a good idea, but that's just like another example where it can, if you have access to debt, you can, you can invest in ways that other folks can't. Um, and depending on your cash balance, it might be good or bad. Um, but that's let's talk. Uh, well, maybe we shouldn't talk the corporate world. I was doing some Googling. Yeah, the I mean, world. there are definitely companies that took out that used debt, again, the form of bonds to do stock buybacks when they felt like the cost of borrowing was dirt cheap and their stock was undervalued. It's an interesting thing. If you hit, you hit huge. If you miss, that's an absolutely idiotic idea. And a second, this is like a second or third like level way that it happens. If historically, um, marginalized groups have not had the same access to funds when it comes to starting companies as well, right? Yeah. And so if, if an entrepreneur is getting their money from a venture capital firm and that venture capital firm can invest a billion dollars because they took out debt as well, then you also have this like huge leverage swing because the uh, I'll say the majority right communities are able to go and start businesses because the VC firm banks whoever they are have more capital and that also leaves behind right like the marginalized communities they don't have access to even that second order of debt like it's a it's interesting going and it's similar going back to you brought up housing and we've talked about this before if you go back whatever seventy years ago when the government was injecting a lot of money into the into the system in order for people to be able to buy houses it was specifically the ability for yeah. to be honest like white males right to be able to buy houses and so they were able to take out the loans that they could use to then buy houses where 70 years later their families now right it's no like, it's it's 90 years now and this is a topic i'd like to learn more about it's the 30s i think 1930s because this was mentioned in the the power of crisis book that i'm reading and I didn't know all the specifics here, Duke. I was like, they effectively wrote into law that certain neighborhoods were not eligible for this type. And those neighborhoods were di disproportionately, almost entirely like black folks. I mean, it's it just not cool. I, I, yeah. There's so much to this. And then you extrapolate that out 90 years. Compounding. The ramifications are massive. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's massive. It's massive. Cool. Well, thank you, Greg, for the question. Really appreciate it. It allowed me personally to nerd out and have a solid conversation with Skippy about it. So more listener hey. mail, always better. Skippy do. Yeah, I mean, I could go now. 15 more minutes. You've, you've fascinated me about the debt cycle. Let me add one more thing before we wrap. It's yeah. just, I don't think about the debt cycle much because <laughs> I don't really like debt. So can you just talk about that, Diggles? Like, it, I, I, all the points you're making are perfectly reasonable, logical, rational. But do you think that it's important to use financial leverage to expedite? Like you talked a lot about starting a business there and uh, that's your background. Like, is there a way to do this without debt? It's absolutely. There are definitely ways to do it without debt. Um, it will generally take longer. I think it, it depends on your your time but, horizon but, but you do reduce starting. your risk significantly right 
Well, you can also, yeah. And a way to also reduce your risk is this is not debt, but you just use other people's money, right? That That's what venture capital ends up being is that you're using other people's yeah. money. So that's yep. equity, which can sometimes also yep. be more expensive depending on where you are in your company cycle. But yeah, you can you can do it without debt. When when interest rates are like 0%, right? You, gotta, you just have to be really careful because there is no free lunch, right? Like it is still debt. Um, but if you are, if your business is solid enough with its um, with cash management and some, some businesses are just more capital intensive, like you have to put up money. Absolutely. Sometimes debt is the, like, is the way to do it. You just have to be really careful with it. Like it is money owed. It's not funny money, right? It's actually money owed. Um, so you can, but it can be risky. You're right. Okay. All righty. Fun combo, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. I learned a bunch. So you know where to find us. One-stop shop, skippydougals.com, Twitter, Skippy, at skippydougals. We love premium subscribers. You can do that, supercast.skippydougals.com, and uh, rate and review the show if you get a chance. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, listener counts have been great. We're still getting listeners from all over the world, which we love. My one request, Dougals, when you send in listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com is the best place for that. Tell us what part of the world you're from, maybe city, state, or city, country, um, because it's fun to hear people from all over the globe, whether that's Ukraine or Guatemala or somewhere in Africa. It's awesome. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys.